Trinity Park Church, good afternoon. It's good to see everyone, both those that are here in person and those that uh, will be joining us online. Um, we have another opportunity here to worship the Lord, and I'm so thankful that our God uh, invites us to worship him, and as he invites us to worship him, he reminds us of who he is um, and how he works, his wondrous works um, for us on our behalf. So I want to invite everyone. Um, you can find the order of service in your bulletin on the church app. And let's hear these words where God calls us all into worship. These words come from Psalm 145. I'm going to read the first 13 verses. And we'll see here God's greatness. Um, we see his wondrous works. We see what he's done. And he declares who he is. Hear these words. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we uh, worship God together? Well, Lord, we extol you, our God and King. We bless your name forever and ever. Lord, I pray that this afternoon you would remind us of your mighty acts. Remind us, Lord, that you are the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You are a covenant keeper. You are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger, and you are abounding in steadfast love. And so now as we come to you and worship God, would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us? Would you sustain us? And would you complete our joy in Jesus Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you, if you're able to, to please go ahead and stand, and let's lift our voices to the Lord as we sing all creatures of our God and King.
thank you for an opportunity to consider your wondrous works. So we are those who once were lost in darkest night, yet God has rescued us. Let's sing to our Savior. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and life, and led me to I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I Jesus is my life. 
be seated. Good morning. As we come as God's people into his presence, he whom Isaiah entered into his presence and saw the angels around the throne singing and crying out, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. When we come into his holy presence, we realize and declare he is holy and we realize that we are not. So we come confessing our sins. So let's do that together now. Would you confess your sins aloud with me as we confess them for ourselves as we confess them corporately? Would you pray and confess aloud with me? Lord Jesus Christ, sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive, yet your compassions yearn over me, your heart hastens to my rescue. Your love endured my curse. Your mercy bore my justice. Let me walk in humility, bathed in your blood, tender of conscience, living in triumph as an heir of salvation through your blessed name. Amen. Would you take just a few moments to quietly pray this to God, and I'll close this in just a moment with an assurance of pardoning grace. Father, our condition is worse than we know. These aren't just words, it's real because your word says so. So we come confessing, we come and we cry out, have mercy on us, O God. Yet we know, according to your word, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So hear this word, this assurance of pardoning grace for you, for me. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the time in our service that we've set aside for our offering. And let's continue in our worship as we sing, I Stand Amazed. You're welcome to stand or sit, whichever you'd like, but let's sing out together before the Lord of how marvelous and wonderful he truly is. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be.
Hey, Trinity Park, good to see you. I'm Corey Jackson, the senior pastor here. If you're new, either online or here in person, great to see all of you. So I wanted to take a minute to give you guys a preview of congregational meetings that are coming up this week. Those are going to be on Zoom. Uh, They're going to be on Monday nights, Tuesday nights, and Thursday nights at 7.30. We're having three, so you can come in smaller groups depending on your schedule. Uh, If you have a community group that meets this week, you're welcome to cancel that uh, if you need to in order for people to attend these meetings well. Uh, This will amount to essentially a family business meeting, um, coming together and talking about uh, how we're doing financially as a church post-2020. We now have final bids that have come in on the Maynard property and kind of finalized and uh, valued those those, uh, as well as we can. And we've gotten down to the amount that we need in order to meet the, the needs of that property and to get into that this year. And so we want to share more about that with you. And uh, it's, it's going to be a call to you know, understanding where we're at and then a call to how do we trust the Lord and walk faithfully in this moment together as a church. And so I would highly encourage you to come and be present for those meetings. Uh, we'll have elders and deacons explaining different aspects of where we're at in the process and some of the decisions that uh, we may... Uh, may need to make in light of where we're at financially to get into the building. Uh, but yeah, come and we'll, we'll, we'll tell you more. Um, the Lord has always come through for our church. And I'll tell you some stories of how the Lord has come through in those meetings as well. And so um, it's a time definitely to trust the Lord together for the future of our church. Uh, also, I just want to give you a preview of the next four weeks. Originally, the congregational meetings were going to be a follow-up on the elders retreat, which happened early December, which seems like a year ago uh, in, in this world that we live in. So that seems like old news now. We're going to take uh, four consecutive vision moments where we have different elders that are going to share with you about the vision of our church and different aspects of what we value as elders. So next week, we'll have Claire Hine. He's going to share about the overall vision of the church that the elders have um, that we talked about in our elders retreat. And then the next week, uh, Adam Strouth is going to share a little bit of an update on women at Trinity Park, uh, which is a follow-up from our January 2nd vision moment. On February the 6th, um, we have to have Clay share about neighbors and nations, that aspect of our vision, that we're not just a multicultural church, but a cross-cultural church, and how do we pursue that together in our community? And then on the 13th of February, uh, Richard will share with us about uh, the officer election process Again, it feels like forever ago that we told you that Mark Jung and Zach Johnson are going through elder and deacon training, respectively. Uh, But it's about time for them to conclude that training and to be up for election. And so we'll bring you up to speed on that in the uh, February 13th vision moment. Uh, But there's a lot going on as a church. It's a time. It's easy to feel disconnected. I mean, we're all over the place, and we're meeting in our community groups on Zoom. And a lot of you are attending online uh, with worship. And so these opportunities we have are an opportunity to come together to hear more about the finances, the building, the vision of the church, and some things that God is doing, highly encourage you to take uh, the opportunities that are available to you to be connected to what God is doing. Thanks. We come with many needs, but we have an Abba Father in heaven who invites us to come to his throne of grace and to ask for help in our day of trouble. So would you pray with me? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We come as we are this morning. We come as the poor and needy, the bruised and broken by the fall. And we extol you. We lift up your name. In the obedience and blood of Jesus, we come and we declare you not just as the God, but as our God. Not just as a king, not just just as the king, but as our king. And we cry out, your kingdom come. This morning we gather and we bless your name. We praise your name. You really are good and you do good. Great are you, Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. With the psalmist, we confess that even as we lean in and receive your word, that your greatness is unsearchable. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how mysterious are your ways. You say one generation shall declare your works to another. So according to your covenant promises this morning, we come and we beg that reality. May we declare your works, your power, your goodness, your mercy to us in Christ to the next generation and may they declare that to the generations yet unborn. We dare pray it because you declare the promise of your covenant of grace, that it's for us and it's for our children. So we ask, we cry out, may they know, love, and enjoy you forever. This morning amid the whirl and storm of our current moment in history, we remember the confession of scripture and we declare it as our own this morning. You, O Lord, really are gracious and merciful. You, Yahweh, Lord, our Lord, you really are slow to anger. You abound in steadfast love, a steadfast love that is sealed forever in the blood of Jesus, our mediator, a steadfast love that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from your love to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Psalm says that your kingdom really is an everlasting kingdom. So we pray this morning for that kingdom to come. May it come in us, may it come in our hearts, may it come in our families, may it come in Trinity Park Church, may it come in this broken world. And God, as you work in us, would you change our hearts so that we realize that our primary and lasting eternal citizenship is not here, but it's in that kingdom of Jesus. So would you cure us? Would you heal us of our hateful tribal affiliations here and turn our hearts to love one another, to love you? On this Tomorrow, which is Sanctity of Life Sunday, we acknowledge you as the creator of human life. We acknowledge that you knit us together in our mother's wombs. So we praise you, and we pray that in this present moment, this present world, that we would treasure the unborn, that we would treasure the unborn all the way through the elderly as those created in your image, whom you say are fearfully and wonderfully made. Would you heal us? of our disdain for human life. This morning we come and we pray for the sick in our midst. We pray for those that have COVID. Oh God, would you heal us? Would you deliver us from this moment?
Father, we praise for those in our church that are sick with other things, some which are long-term illnesses without answers that struggle for hope to hang on. Would you help them? Would you heal them? May they know you is with them. May they know you is good. May they know you is for them. Father, this morning we want to pray for Robert, who works with Gary Hodge. He's facing health challenges and he's asked us to pray, oh God, would you heal him? Would you heal us? Oh God, we cry. Father Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for kings and rulers and those in authority. So we pray this morning for our newly elected government. We pray that you'd give them wisdom. May they reign and rule with justice, with mercy, with wisdom. And we pray this so that we can live quiet and godly lives for our good and for your glory, for our good and for the love of our neighbors, for our good and the glory of the awesome, eternal, righteous, good name of Jesus, we pray it. We come with our needs this morning. Father, as we move into a physical building, real estate that costs money, and all the other many needs we have, would you give us our daily bread? This morning, as Liz reads the word to us and as Corey opens it and preaches, would you work in us by your word and your spirit, even this afternoon, even as we sit out here in the cold, may your spirit warm our hearts to you. May we receive the implanted word as fertile soil for the glory and eternal kingdom of Jesus, we pray in his awesome, glorious name. Amen. The reading is taken from chapters 6 and 7 of Acts starting in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Acts 7, verses 1 to 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, 
God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God, spo and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they, will come, they shall come out and worship me in this place. Verses 17 to 22. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verses 30 to 40. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verses 44 to 60. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. I know it's cold. Thanks for sitting through a long reading of scripture. It's a beautiful reading that recounts the history of Israel, and it centers on a man named Stephen, uh, who you find in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Stephen was a man whose entire life, his allegiance, his affections, and his action, they all centered, they all orbited around the person of Jesus Christ. You find a man in this section whose entire life was shaped around Jesus. Stephen was a unique Christian. I'm not referring to his intellect or his passion or his ability to preach, and all of those were exceptional. He was a unique Christian because his, his life, the, the center point of his life, of everything about him was anchored around Christ. Christ was the son of his universe. That's what made Stephen unique. Now, Stephen is a unique Christian. He doesn't have to be a unique Christian. We all as Christians are called to have our life centered on Christ, to have Christ as the unique son, the orbiting center of our world. The problem for us isn't that Jesus doesn't want to give us a life like Stephen. The problem for us is that we simply have our life anchored and centered in other places. We have other sons in our universe. And that, that's on us. We have the opportunity to center our life on Christ like Stephen does. Unfortunately, if we're honest, for, for most of us, Jesus is not many, many times the center of who we are. And so consequently, we don't experience the transformation or vitality that Stephen enjoyed. And so throughout this sermon, as we get into Stephen's life, we're going to talk about his life, we're going to talk about his message, we're going to talk about his martyrdom. I want you to ask yourself the question, honestly, is my life centered around Christ? Is Jesus the functional, orbiting center of my life? Is he the sun in my universe? And I want you to be open to the idea, open to the fact that the Holy Spirit might convict you. 
that maybe there are other loves in your life. Maybe Jesus isn't the center of your affection, your allegiance, your action. And there's a way that you're called to repentance by the Holy Spirit. And I just want to remind you, Romans 2.4 tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If the Lord calls you back to himself and he, he reminds you of how sufficient he is and how much he cares about you and loves you, and you repent and you recover that orbit of your life, then that would be a beautiful thing. Because we as human beings, we're created to have one center, one fixed point, one great love, and that is God alone. So let's look at Stephen's, first of all, Stephen's life. And we find that all throughout, but particularly in chapter 6. I I preached on chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 last week. where It talked about why Stephen and the other six men were called to be deacons. They were full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit. They were full of faith. He was no ordinary man. These seven deacons were called because of what was going on in their life. But what separates Stephen and these men apart from the rest? Well, as we see with Stephen, first of all, his faith differentiated him. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith as being certain of what we hope for, and sure of what we do not see. And in Stephen, what you see is a man who was living, at the end of his life, you especially see this, and we'll get there, but you see a man who was living his life now before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He lives with a heavenly vision. He lives in an eschatological reality, is a big word way to put it. He sees the future. He sees reality. He sees the kingdom. He sees the king, and he lives his life on this earth earth in light of that invisible kingdom. And he puts his faith to work in this passage. He makes the mission of his life to to make the invisible kingdom of Jesus visible. So his faith differentiated him. Also, his fullness of the Spirit differentiated him. In fact, in chapter 6, and then again at chapter 7, just before he is stoned, the text says that he is full of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? Well, when someone is full of the Spirit, especially in Acts, normally what it means is they're empowered to speak the message of the gospel. They're empowered to live their life in light of the gospel. God does something in them that enables them to make their personal identity and Jesus' identity inseparable from one another. Now, we don't always live with this fullness of the Spirit. We all have the Holy Spirit. We're all given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. But as I've preached about before, as we went through Acts 2 and other passages, the fullness of the Spirit is something that's contingent upon us yielding to the Lord, us really trusting the Lord, and it's also contingent on on God doing work in us as well. But we should seek to be full of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we boldly identify ourselves with Jesus. So his faith differentiated him, his fullness of the Spirit differentiated him, and finally, his spiritual transformation differentiated him. If you look at verse 8, Stephen is said to be a man full of grace and power. Now normally these are opposites in a person. You might say that someone is gracious, and you might say that some or someone is powerful, but you rarely find someone who is both gracious and powerful. Normally these qualities don't simultaneously occur in someone. But in fact, this description mirrors the biblical descriptions of Jesus, who was both a lion and a lamb. 
He was a lion who courageously stood, just like Stephen did. The, mirror, the mirroring of Jesus and Stephen's life are amazing. Jesus also was, was accused of speaking against the temple and the law. Jesus was also tried before a kangaroo court on, on unsubstantiated claims. Jesus also courageously brought the gospel of the kingdom in, and people were saved spiritually and physically. And this is what we see in Stephen. Stephen's life, the more Jesus is his son, the more his life orbits around Christ, the more he becomes like Christ. In his lion-like boldness and in his lamb-like humility. Listen, Stephen knows what's coming to him as he's standing before the Sanhedrin. And as you'll see in a minute, the way that he is very um, kindly, respectfully, but boldly calling these men out in their failure as leaders of Israel to actually be spiritual leaders. He knows what's coming to him, and he is humbly articulating the gospel to them, knowing it will lead to his death. He is both lion-like and lamb-like, like Jesus. So first of all, if we love Jesus, it means he's going to be the center of our affections. He's going to capture our heart and our soul. Gregory Beale who's a writer and a professor, put it this way. He says, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. The nature of humanity is to become like, over time, that thing or those people or whatever that idea is that you circulate your life around most often. We become what we worship. That means you need to be very, very careful about what you allow yourself to get obsessed about in life. What are you obsessed about? Well, the Proverbs say that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what's in your heart? What do you find yourself talking about? What do you find yourself so badly wanting other people to understand? What fills your mouth? What fills your typing? What what is your life about in terms of communication? Well, there you might find a hint about what you're most fixated upon, about what your obsession is might be. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you fixate yourself on anything other than God, you were made as a human being to not be alone. You were made with a God-shaped void, as Blaise Pascal put it. And whatever you center your life around, you will become like that thing. And if you center your life on anything besides the Lord, besides God, the God of grace, then it will ultimately end in your demise in your destruction. You see, nothing else can be plugged into that void of your life and satisfy you and transform you in the ways that you are seeking after. So if you obsess over politics, if you put politics in there, good night, it will lead to your demise. If you put anything in there, if you put an obsession over something really good, some cause, and you put that in there, and you actually make that the center of your life and not Jesus, it will end up destroying you. If you put the opinions of other people and just want to make other people happy in the center of your life, it will end up destroying you. If you put success, financial success, career success, family success, any kind of success, and you put it in there, then ultimately it will end in your demise. But if we worship Jesus like Stephen did, the effects will be the opposite. We can be transformed by the grace and glory of God. We too can become like he was, filled with fierce lion-like boldness in the right places for Jesus Christ's sake and lamb-like humility. If you're someone, 
that you tend to be bold and you tend to run over people, then God can and will, if you shape your life around Jesus, he will make you more lamb-like so that you are humble and gentle. If you tend to be someone who you just get run over all the time and you're willing just to take a hit and let other people have their way, then God will show you the appropriate way to speak up for him and even for yourself in the right ways. God can transform our lives like Stephen if we make him the center of our affections and our heart and our soul. So in this first section, the Sanhedrin puts Stephen on trial. That's the trial that seems to be happening in this first section. And these guys don't like him. They don't like him for one reason only. He looks and he sounds like Jesus. And they hated Jesus. These same men hated Jesus. And here comes Stephen, looking and sounding just like Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus in Stephen's life. We also see Jesus in Stephen's message. We find this in his substantial sermon that he preached. So Stephen is questioned mainly. It's a long bit of text there, but the main circulation points for his sermon and the accusations against Stephen are about his view of the law and his view of the temple. In verse 11, about the law, they say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. And then about the temple in verse 13 and 14, they say, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. We have heard him say this, Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us. And so Stephen is responding to their accusations, and he's going to preach the gospel to them in the very place of these accusations. They're telling him, we have a problem with the way that you're talking about the law and the temple. And Stephen is saying, well, let me show you the gospel through this lens of law and temple. So first of all, we'll take up the accusation regarding the temple. So essentially, Stephen is making his argument to them based on how the place of God, that's the temple, is the place of God. Stephen is making the argument that the place of God has changed throughout Israel's history. And I want to give a lot of credit here to John Stott and Tim Keller for helping me understand what you will hear preached on following. The main contention and theme here of Stephen is this, you cannot box God in, he is uncontainable. You cannot box God in, he is uncontainable. John Chrysostom, a great preacher in the 4th and 5th century, understood Stephen to be saying, the holy place of God is wherever God may be. That's where you'll find the holy place of God. It's wherever God is. It's not in a particular place. It's not in a box as it was in the Holy of Holies. And he makes his case from Scripture. Again, I am really running through some text here. But in verses 2 through 8, we start with Abraham. In the patriarchal age, God visited Abraham where? Far away in a pagan land. Far away in a pagan land, God came to Abraham long before the temple was ever conceived. And the point is God is not confined to Israel. And then Joseph and the Exodus, verses 9 through 19, the point is God was with Joseph in Egypt, a pagan land, and so God is not confined to Israel. God was with his people when they were in Egypt. 
It's never been about just the land of Israel. And then in Moses and the wilderness wanderings, verses 20 through 43, as Liz read through that, God meets Moses in all kinds of places, of all places in a burning bush in Palestine. God is not confined to the temple. God met Moses. He met Moses when he was on the river as a baby. And how cool is that that we got to read that on Sanctity of Life? I guess it's Saturday instead of Sunday. And if you're watching tomorrow, it's Sunday. But, you know, he was exposed to the elements. And what a horrible thing this was, and God saved his life. God was with Moses there on the river. From Moses to David to Solomon, verses 44 through 50. When Moses built the tabernacle, what it was patterned after a greater reality in heaven. When Solomon built the temple, Stephen recounts, verses 49 and 50, where God says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? So all along, God is uncontainable. These tabernacle, this temple, it's only a type, it's only a picture of a greater heavenly reality. He's saying to these leaders, you can't confine God. God is uncontainable. And how encouraging is that for us? God also comes out at any temperature level, right? He's available to you when it's hot or when it's cold, whether you're meeting here at the courtyard or we're inside or whatever we're doing. God is uncontainable. God is wherever God is. That's where his presence is. And and through Christ, what has come to us is Christ came near to us. He brought the presence of God into the world. And through his death and resurrection and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, God is uncontainable. God is where God is and where is God? He is with us. He is in our hearts. The Holy Spirit fills us so that now the presence of God is wherever the church may be. And it is wherever God may be through the extension of the church in the world. The Lord is uncontainable. That's how he answers their accusation regarding the temple. And then second, his accusation, or their accusation regarding the law. So in a way that's respectful of Israel's history, he draws a sharp contrast between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of Israel and its leaders. He says, in effect, This has never been about Israel's leaders and its laws. It's been about the righteousness and the faithfulness of God. He says, you guys are obsessing over all of these leaders. At one point in the beginning, it says, this guy has been blaspheming against Moses and against God. Well, that will tell you something. Maybe that's a little bit of a too high elevation of Moses. They don't even know the difference between Moses and God, right? They are total, their understanding of the law is completely out of line. He says to them, Israel's identity has always been about God's presence, not about our leaders. Again, he says, Abraham was chosen when he was a pagan in Mesopotamia, but God was with him. The patriarchs are jealous of Joseph and tried to kill him, but God was with him. Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster, was raised in the house of Pharaoh, but God was with him. It's not about Israel's leaders. It's about the God of Israel's leaders. God was with Moses in the burning bush, in the plagues, in the exodus, at Sinai, in the wilderness. It's God who saved Israel, not Moses. And then he says, Israel's identity has always been about God's redemption, not our laws. They accused him in, in chapter 6, verse 12, of speaking against the law. So Stephen isn't saying that the law is bad, and, and as Christians, we shouldn't say the law is bad. The law is good. 
It reflects God's character. The problem with the law is not the law. The problem is with our hearts. Our sinful hearts are unable to keep the law. And that's what Stephen is saying. I don't have a problem with your laws. I have a problem with your hearts. I have a problem with your hearts because you actually, you, Sanhedrin, actually believe you're keeping the law. And that's your problem. Your problem is not the law. Your problem is that you think you're keeping the law. You don't even know that you need a righteous one who he talks about later on. So in the second section, Stephen is putting this Sanhedrin on trial. He flips the tables. They're putting him on trial in the first section, and now Stephen flips the tables. And he says, no, I'm going to put you on trial, not in your court, but in God's court. Now we're standing before God, and let me tell you what God thinks of you. He says, first of all, you say I hate the temple, but it is you who do not know the presence of God. It is you who do not know the presence of God. You who are so passionate about the temple. Do you know God? That's the point, right? He calls them stiff-necked people in verse 51. That was a really bad thing to say to somebody back then, all right? Real bad. That's a real bad thing to say. Stiff-necked people. They're unwilling to bend and break at the will of God. Have you ever, if you ever played baseball and you get a new baseball glove and you, and you get it, you bring it home off the shelf, or, or maybe you play cricket in our community, I don't even know. But you get a new, you know, new glove of some kind, you need to break it in. If you don't break in the glove, it's totally useless. I remember going home with my, from my dad, picking up a baseball glove at the store. Come home, you, you're so disappointed when you first get that glove. I mean, you're so excited about it, it's so shiny, but you can't do anything with it. You've got to break it in. And, and these men and a lot of Christians are like unbroken-in baseball gloves. They, they can't bend and they can't break at the will of the Spirit. They're Christians, but they're doing whatever they want. They can't remember the last time they bent their life, they orbited their life around, around Jesus. They can't remember the last time that they bent their will and were broken at the, at the Holy Spirit convicting them of their sin. And, and he calls them stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. He's saying, you're concerned for external rituals like circumcision. That's useless because your heart is uncircumcised. You need new birth, he is saying. You need the Spirit, he is saying. And you need a righteous one in verse 52. Christ is the only one who can bring the holy presence of God. That's what he says about the law, I mean, about the temple. And then he says about the law, as he's putting them on trial, you say, I hate the law, but it is you who are unrighteous, he says. Now, that is a real cut down for these guys. Unrighteous Sanhedrin? He's saying, you had the righteous one, and what did you do? You killed him. You killed him. You had the one. You had the righteous one. You had the one that lived up to the letter of the law, that fulfilled the law perfectly, and you don't even know the law well enough to know that he's the one. He's the only one. You didn't know, and not only did you not know, it's the inversion of knowing because you actually murdered him. You do not know righteousness because you killed the righteous one. You need new obedient hearts. Jesus alone brings us the presence and the righteousness of God. He is our perfect obedience. And in this section we learn that loving Jesus means that he needs to hold all of our allegiance we don't give ourselves 
our own righteousness. We can't gift righteousness to ourselves. We can't gift the presence of God into our lives, which is the only thing that can make our lives work. Only God can do that for us as we make him the center of our allegiance. So my question for you in this section is, where does your righteousness come from? When you realize that you are are falling short, you didn't do as well as you could have or should have, where do you go? Where do you turn for righteousness? Do you you find somebody less able than you in a given area, compare yourself to them and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are? Or do you you add to your to-do list? Do you get up and go, well, I'm going to make sure I do everything right today. I'm going to get my list done or do you set crazy goals for yourself that, that, that are impossible for you to fulfill? Where does your righteousness come from? Does your righteousness come from your own good works, from your own uh, sizing up of yourself against other people? Or does your righteousness come from God? Where do you get that sense of I'm enough, that sense of God accepts me? Where does that come from? Does it come from Jesus How do you answer that call of shame? Do you try to make yourself better or do you just say, Lord, help me? Jesus, I'm so grateful that you love me. Where does your righteousness come from? Our righteousness can only come from Jesus Christ. We need to fix our allegiance on him. So we saw Jesus in his life, in Stephen's testimony, or in his words, and now in his death. So we see Jesus in Stephen's martyrdom, and that's in the final verses 54 through 60 of chapter 7. So Stephen's martyrdom is a critical moment in church history for several reasons. One, Saul was there, this man named Saul, who's mentioned at the end of this passage. Saul would become the apostle Paul. This may be the first time that Saul heard the gospel preached. Eventually it changed his life. And it changed the course of human, it changed the course of human history and of church history because its, its greatest leader, besides Jesus, would hear the gospel. And Saul's initial response was not one of love and acceptance. It was hatred. But God was transforming Saul in this moment. It's also a significant moment because after his martyrdom, the church begins to be persecuted like Stephen. This moment sets off a, a persecution of the church like no other. That They hadn't seen this kind of thing before. And what happens is the church starts migrating out. The diaspora forms. And the fulfillment of Acts 1.8, which is the theme verse of Acts, which is, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, the way that gets fulfilled, in part, is through persecution because the church has to go. They have to flee and they have to move. And they have to cross cultural boundaries. And it starts with Stephen. But you know what? Stephen didn't know that. For this moment in Stephen's life, he's just a man. He's just a man. He's just a Christian. He knows his God. He loves Jesus. And he's just seeking to be faithful. He has no idea of the implications. He has no idea that we would be talking about him today. No idea. He is just a man on trial for his life, and he stands for Christ. That's it. And, you know, you and I don't know the, the effects of our lives either. You don't know the impact of the time you spend with your children. You don't know the impact that you have on other people by your choices. 
You don't know the impact that you have on how you handle your money and what you invest your time and your resources in. You never know. Future generations may know. They may or may not know. But we stand before Christ in every moment of our lives, and he's just a man who's called to be faithful. He trusts God with this moment that he was given. In verse 54, it says, When they heard his testimony, especially towards the end, that as he's turning the tables on him, they became enraged. But in verse 55, it says, Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen saw Jesus, he saw Jesus throughout his life, he lived with this heavenly vision, this kingdom vision, and he just was talking about what he sees. This is what he's doing. He's living his life in light of what he believes is the true reality. That's what he is doing. He's doing it in the visible world, but he's living in light of an invisible reality that we're moving into, and he's drawing the heavenly kingdom the heavenly throne room of God, into this present age, into this reality. He's bringing the law court of God, the the high tabernacle of God, the heavenly tabernacle, and he's bringing it here, and he's living his life in the presence of God. And in his vision just before his death, we see a few key things about Jesus Christ that we may not find in other places in Scripture quite as clearly. First of all, we see that Jesus is the reigning king. He is right now reigning. And if we could peel back the blue sky and we could see what's really happening, who's really on the throne, who's really ruling and reigning over this world, we would see Jesus. We would see King Jesus there at the right hand of God. Stephen is living in the reality of the unseen king and his kingdom. And so Jesus, the true king, is welcoming him into heaven. So we see Jesus as the reigning king. We also see Jesus as our defense attorney. A lot of commentaries believe that Jesus stands here. He stands up. A lot of times we see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. But here Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. One of the reasons why they believe this is the case is that Jesus is acting as Stephen's defense attorney. He is standing up on behalf of Stephen And he is saying, Stephen, even though you're being condemned in this court, this joke of a court that you're in right now, you will not be condemned when you are received into my court. I receive you. You have been made righteous by me. My blood covers you. And so even though right now the stones are about to start flying, I am with you, and I am receiving you, and in my word is the word that stands, not the words of these men. And we get to the end, verse 57. They, they hear his testimony, they cover their ears, and they yell at the top of their voices. These are religious leaders. I want you to imagine this. They all rush at him, they drag him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. And here we see the third aspect of Jesus in Stephen's life and his death. We see Jesus as the hope of glory. So Stephen's face Imagine this. These men have drugged him out. They're stoning him. They're killing him in pain. And he is standing there gazing into heaven with the face with the face of an angel, it says. An angel, angel who reflects the glory of God. In this moment of death, he is so consumed with Jesus 
that he quotes Jesus' own words as he's being killed himself. He says in verse 59, Lord, receive my spirit. And then in verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What we're seeing here is what we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we find someone who, with ever-increasing glory, is being transformed by the Holy Spirit so that visibly, like Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain, even in a greater way, Stephen's face is shining because he is seeing God. His, his face is being filled with the presence of God in that very moment in time. When I think of Stephen, I always think of the end. I mean, his, his sermon is amazing, but the end of his life, his death, his martyrdom, is where we see Christ shining through him with ever-increasing glory. And in this final section, in the first section, the Sanhedrin, excuse me, Stephen is on trial, then he puts the Sanhedrin on trial, and now Stephen is putting us on trial. He's putting you and me on trial. As we look at his life and we see his faith, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for me to be held accountable by someone's life who was patterned so closely like Jesus? In this final section, we've talked about how Jesus needs to be the center of our affections and our allegiance. Well, now we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the center of my action? My allegiance, my affection, and my action. What does it mean to act upon the fact that I believe that Jesus is Lord, that he is the center of my universe, that he is the focal point of my life? What would it look like to follow Jesus and the example of Stephen? Well, you may wonder for a second, if I love Jesus and I put him at the center of my life, does it mean that I will have to die like Stephen did? Well, it absolutely means that. You may not die by being stoned, but it absolutely means that you have to die. You have to die to yourself. You can't serve yourself and serve Jesus. No man can serve two masters. You have to die. It absolutely is a call to spiritual, real spiritual death, a death to all other loves and centers. Tim Keller said this, If you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family is together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if is your real master. I'll serve you, Jesus, if, 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 if. That's not serving Jesus. That's serving that thing and asking Jesus to be your butler and asking him to bring it to you. Jesus doesn't want to be your butler. He is not your butler. And he will not be your boy. He is the Lord. He is the functional center of our universe. And though it feels like you're literally losing everything to gain Jesus, George MacDonald put it this way. You will remain dead so long as you refuse to die. You will remain dead so long as you refuse to die. The reality is you think you have life. And you're, you're worried about trusting Jesus and dying to Jesus. The reality is you're actually, until you have Jesus, if you're maintaining something on the other side of that if, you don't really have life yet like Jesus wants you to have it. You're holding on to something that's dead. 
You're plugging something else into the center of that God-shaped void of your life and saying, please give me everything I was created to have, and it will destroy you. But if you will die to whatever that thing is or those things that you make the functional center of your life, and you'll trust Christ, you'll gain new life. You'll gain life in him, a life that looks like Stephen's. You'll gain a life where you're transformed in ever-increasing glory. I wonder what you've thought about. I know we've thought about Stephen's life. We've thought about Christ. I wonder if you've thought about if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of something in your life that you might be tempted or you might be actually plugging in. You might actually be serving and so that Jesus will give it to you, treating Jesus like your functional butler instead of your Lord. I wonder what that thing is. You can right now because God is kind. With, with Jesus, I want you to know that death always leads to life. Always. Whatever you die to, whatever you give up for Christ, you'll receive a thousandfold for having died to that thing. Don't hold on to anything else. Just hold on to Christ, and he will transform your life spiritually with ever-increasing glory, just like Stephen experienced. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how we want to live our lives like Stephen. We see a man here who lives his life in front of you, seeing you for who you are in all moments, in all occasions. But Lord, we recognize we don't live that way oftentimes. Lord, we live hemmed in. We live with only seeing what's in front of us. Lord, we're, we're so affected and impacted by the news or by relationships or by things that are going on in our lives, and, and Lord, we don't see you for who you are so oftentimes. We don't see you as the God of glory and the God of grace. We settle for lesser things. So God, I pray that you would help us. You would, you would help us to see you, to see the unseen reality of the kingdom of God in every moment of our lives. Lord, I pray that we would make you the, the center of our universe, the functional orbiting point of our lives. Lord, teach us how to do that. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to us and enable us in this moment, in this time, in all of the nuances of our lives, in all the relationships, in all that we face, in all of the challenges with health, in all of the the deep wounds that we've experienced. Lord, help us to experience your grace and to live our lives before you as our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's stand together and close our time in worship. Cry out like Stephen that we would fix our eyes on him. Jesus Christ, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We walk by faith and not by sight. Just sing out with us. By faith we see the hand of God In the light of creation's
I close the benediction, I'm going to say a quick prayer for the persecuted church just on my heart. Lord, the reality is um, this passage is not theoretical. It's real. So we pray. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We don't know their names. We don't know what they're facing. But we know that there are many who are like Stephen right now, who are threatened by governments, who are imprisoned, who are facing great persecution for your name. So we pray for them. Pray that you would give them what they need. Even as we pray for us, that you would give us what we need. Lord, we think of those who have far less and those whose lives are at stake. So we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would enable them to stand up under the trial that they're in. We pray that you would enable them to be bold with your gospel. We pray for their persecutors. We pray that you would save them. We pray for Wang Yi, our friend of our church who's in prison in China. We pray that you would be with him, be with his wife, be with so many around the world who face the threat. Lord God, may they shine like Stephen in their moment of trial. May we shine in our moments as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours today. World without end. Amen.